0: Hey, folks, this is Kevin. On this week's episode of Risk, you'll hear Brian
1: Kett. All the women I was matching with were just robots trying to steal my banking information. And it was like, you're so cute. What's your mother's maiden name? Like, these are the questions over and over again.
0: That and more. But before that, I just have to say, guys, I can't express the gratitude we're feeling for the support that you are showing us through Patreon. Listen to these Patreon shout outs this week. I have to give shout outs whenever someone gives $25 or more per month. This week it's Amber Thorne, J.R. Bai, Darren Uno, Julie Gunsett, Amanda Lynn, Irving Tijada, Robert Walsh, Jen Hunter Myers, Alma Barada, Max J., David Gross. Mary Soriol and Sean Klein. My goodness, we're really, really moved that people are stepping up because this is ensuring that risk has a future. A few months ago, we were wondering, you know, if we could make it through the year. And the thing of it is... We have not given up on our dreams of expanding what we're doing eventually. You know, uh, we are still very intent on doing even more with risk. We are very intent that risk has a long and healthy future ahead of it. And another podcast series and expanding, you know, the, the range of the kinds of stories we do. So you and I don't know what tomorrow may bring. <laughs>
2: Friends,
0: <laughs> let's be real here. We really don't know what the f- fuck is going to happen next in our country in particular but one thing that is super clear to us is that storytelling this kind of sharing is as important to people as ever you know our advertising money may have (laughs) gone way 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 down but our downloads are great are are rising So it's interesting to note that people are still discovering risk. Approaching 11 years of doing the show, the show is brand new to a lot of people still. And people are falling in love with the show right in the midst of this crazy year that we're in. I'm working on one of our best of risk episodes coming up in a couple weeks. And it is really interesting to note how 2020 has Despite the fact that we've been spread so thin and scrambling and like thinking we might not exist from month to month, it's been a phenomenal year in terms of the work we've done, the content. And as you know, if you do become a Patreon member, there is so much bonus content to be found there. This week, we're featuring a bonus story from Lucy Tomlin Brenner, and it sounds like this.
3: Yeah, I know, it's amazing.
2: I win a vacation to Hawaii, and all I have to do is go to a meeting. That's all.
0: So if you're a new Patreon member, thank you so much. If you're an old one and you... Find that you do have the means to raise the amount you're giving us each month. We would be deeply, deeply grateful for that. This really is helping keep risk running, and we intend to not just run, but flourish and grow in the future. And don't forget that if you just want to make a one-time donation to us, you can do that at paypal.me slash risk show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Oscar Sully behind me now. And I just have to say I am so, so grateful for the support that you all have shown to me personally. You know, this is... I, I, for a long time, I've been saying that Risk is more than just a podcast. It's a very engaged community. <laughs> I'm laughing at my own. <laughs> um, what do you call that? Enunciation. But we are. We are very engaged. <laughs> but it was very, you know, last week's episode was unique because that wasn't really a story that I shared it wasn't I wasn't thinking of it as a narrative but I did talk for more than 20 minutes about my father and uh, and it was there was something so precious about that moment sitting in in a wooded area and um, just kind of letting myself speak as intimately as I wanted to to you all about that aspect of my life and uh, the outpouring from Risk fans in our email box, on subtext, uh, over at the Risk Podcast Fans Discussion Group you know, all over the place we were hearing from people saying beautiful, lovely things, supportive encouraging things and it really meant the world to me. It's been such a surreal week back now in New York City. They have a A rule in New York, I'm sure they do in lots of states, that if you travel, you really can't leave your apartment at all for two weeks straight is the way they want it. Or you could get a big fine if somehow they determine that you did leave. So I've been hunker down <laughs> in bed sty and i started the week off so good eating so healthy exercising meditating working hard on risk stuff and and was just so super super focused and you know determined to enter this new chapter In this very productive way. And then this weekend, the bottom just fell out. You know what I mean? Like this weekend, it was just like uh, some part of my psyche rebelled against all of that. So uh, I've been dragging my feet about even recording this episode. And yet we go on because we understand that that's the way these things work. There are ups, there are downs, there are all sorts of nuances and fluctuations, and you just have to roll with it. You just have to flow with it and understand that uh, there's parts of our psychological experience that are kind of like dealing with the weather. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, 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 there really are periods where it's just like Oh, shit, it's a very, very stormy day inside me, isn't it? (laughs) But we did have a phenomenal live stream on Thursday night. And so it was great to reconnect with people there on one of our live streams. And we have a fabulous episode this week. We're calling this week's episode Startling. And we have four phenomenal stories in it. In a little bit, we're going to hear from Brian Kett, who is a teacher of ours at the Story Studio and a phenomenal storyteller based in Los Angeles. Before that, we're going to hear from Aaron Swigert, Returning to the show, but before both of them, we're going to hear from Namisha Ladva. Namisha, you can find on Twitter at Namisha Ladva, and she is one of our favorites. She's in the Risk book. Each time she's done the show, it's been a classic. So we had her on one of our live streams for the very first time recently, and here she is now with that, doing a story we call Not. Your Model Minority.
3: So listen, it is a truth universally known that um, for a teenager to survive in the world, a teenager must look good and must smell good. And I know this from a very reliable source. I've watched a lot of Axe commercials, so I know it's true. And this sort of rule about teenage life, smelling good and looking good, caused me some complications when I was an immigrant growing up in England. Now, on the one hand, every school I went to had a school uniform. I didn't dress any differently from anyone else at school. On the other hand though, Every single school I ever went to, I was the only non-white person in those schools. I was the only person with black hair. I was the only person with dark skin. I was the only person who smelled a little bit like curry all the time. Now, this meant that I was bullied quite a bit in school in England. And in fact, that was one of the reasons my parents took me out of school and moved our whole family to America. Now, my dad's like a big believer in the American dream. But one thing we didn't know when we moved to America was that um, when you move to America, you move to the particular version of America you land in. So it turns out there's more than one American dream. There's more than one America And the first high school I went to was kind of a miracle, right? It was in a place called Delano, California, which is in central California. It's a farming community, about 16,000 people. And every single person at this school pretty much had black hair. Every single person at this school pretty much spoke a different language at home. We were all Mexican-American, Filipino-American, random people of color, African-American, and then here and there, a few white kids. I mean, sure, some of the cute boys were named Eric and Robert and John, but there were also these fantastic other kinds of cute boys and they had magical new names like Mario and Juan and Sergio. And I felt like as a girl who didn't look so different from everyone else and still on the math team, but there was like hope for me in this place, right? I felt kind of hopeful in this new place, pretty much. I mean, there were some obstacles. You see, the reason my family was in Delano was that we had moved there to take over the local Pioneer Chicken franchise. Now, I am not going to go into why a family of lifelong vegetarians Running a chicken place, I will just say that immigrants make a living, they don't necessarily make sense. Okay, so part of my struggle is that when I'm not in school, I'm working at my parents' restaurant, and because it's a small town, I like work in fear that someone from school is going to come and see me. And it's a problem because at the chicken place, I smell like fried chicken, and worse, I have to wear the pioneer chicken uniform. Now, First of all, the thing is made of polyester. It is brown and yellow and orange and red. These are all colors that I think look awful on me. Worse, it's actually designed for like a grown woman and because I'm like a late blooming 14, 15 year old, it's got all these darts like sewn into it like the front chest plate. And it looks just like a a wobbly, like yellow and brown amoeba in it. And it's just like horrible, right? And I wish I could tell you how it turns out, like all the possibility of like looking like the kids, but kind of smelling two different kinds of weird smells. And, And I'd like to say, this is how it turned out. But you know what, I can't because we move again. This time we moved just like 30 miles away And we start running a different Pioneer Chicken. And the thing about this new town, my high school is far enough away from my parents' store that I don't have to worry about any of the kids in school ever seeing me in this stupid uniform. On the other hand, on my first day at school, I realized that this new school is completely different from any school that I went to in Delano, right? So I walk in. And it is a sea of white faces. And I start to feel like I'm a little bit back in England. I find one Chinese-American friendly face, and I sit next to her. I ask her name, her name is Melody, and she and I become best friends. It turns out that in my um, smart kid classes, there are, in terms of the girl population, there's me, there's Melody, and there's this African-American girl named Lachelle. Now, Lachelle has, like, beautiful black hair that, when you stand next to her, smells like coconut, which I like because on the weekends, my mom puts coconut oil in my hair, too. And she wears, like, her own style going on. She wears bright yellow, bright green, bright red, and she's kind of got her own thing going on. Melanie and I aren't exactly friends with her, but we consider ourselves, like, a neutral party towards her. And I say this because at that school, in those classes, people were mean to her. I remember one day in particular, um, these two boys, they were like at the top of the food chain. They were scholar, athletes. They were like the smart jocks. These were the two boys who, I kid you not, go to Yale and Stanford after graduation, right? So in AP history or English, whatever it was, they take Lachelle's pencil case and they start tossing it back and forth, back and forth. And she can't get it, because they're like athletes, right? They're so much bigger than her. She can't get it back from them. And then they start saying stuff, and the stuff they say is mean. And they're like, hey, shell, why do you wear such weird clothes? And you know, I'm like, oh my God, they're talking about that. Like, hey, shell, why do you smell like coconuts all the time? I'm like, oh my God, I better tell my mom to stop putting coconut in my hair on the weekends and they're just horrible to her, and they don't stop. The teacher comes in, and they do not give her pencil case back. During this whole thing that's happening, the one thing I'm thinking is, oh my God, that's what my life used to be like in England, and I'm relieved that it wasn't me. I'm not proud of that, but that's the truth of what I was feeling. I sit down, Lachelle turns around because she sits next to me. I know she needs a pencil. We look at each other. I'm unable to say anything. I smile this weak smile and I hand her a pencil. I don't ask her how she's doing. I don't check in on her. So at this school, I don't get teased like Lachelle does, but I'm also not invited and included in things with like all the white kids. I'm the kid that they like to have on group projects because it will probably get them a better grade. So this is sort of my life, right? I am friends with a couple of white nerdy girls and they're really sweet. They, the two of them have this sort of like Mormon thing going on and Melanie and I have our Asian thing going on. There's this one day, right? I think it was 10th grade where these two kids, they are twins, a boy and a girl, invite the whole class to a swim party. I'm going to be real here. I wasn't specifically included, but because I was not specifically excluded, I kind of took it as my first official invitation to the kind of party where popular kids would show up. And I really, really want to go. There are some obstacles. For the most part, my parents are not going to be happy with me hanging out with, like, half-naked, wet, white people when I could be studying for the SAT, right? So they're not going to go for that. I don't have a ride because my bestie, Melody, for some reason, isn't going to this party. And I don't own a swimsuit. I haven't worn one since I was like six or seven years old. So I have some problems. But I beg and beg and beg my mom to let me go. She finally relents. And I figured out that, one of the uh, white girls is going to give me a ride. And she turns out to be amazing. She lets me borrow a swimsuit. Now, this swimsuit is amazing, right? Because all my clothes come from, like, the two stores in the little small town I used to live in or, like, the clearance rack at JCPenney. But this is like a swimsuit that a real white girl wears, right? And I'm pretty excited about this. Like, I know that if I wear this thing, I'm going to look good, right? So I get home. I've got this swimsuit in my backpack. I take it out. I look at the material, and it's white. I put it against my arm, and I kind of like the way the white contrasts on my dark skin. And I'm sort of admiring it on my arm and, like, kind of having a little bit of fun with it. I have to get ready, but I also have to do all my Friday chores before I can go. So I'm, you know, cleaning and tidying up and taking care of my brother. And before I know it, this girl that's giving me the ride shows up and I'm not done. So I'm like, oh, my God, I throw on my swimsuit. I get ready. I run downstairs. I try to get out of the house before my mom figures out I haven't actually finished my chores. I get in the car and I'm feeling pretty much amazing i know that this swimsuit has kind of a high scoop in the front and a nice low scoop in the back and i know i'm gonna look awesome right i'm gonna have that peak teen party experience that i have been waiting for i've been excluded from this entire time and you know what i'm right i get to the party my friend goes to talk to other people every time i walk past someone People give me compliments. It's amazing. So like, I walk by this one person, I'm like, "Wow, Nimesha, nice swimsuit." I'm like, oh, "Thank you."
2: And then
3: I walk by someone, they're like, oh, "Looking good, Nimesha." I'm like, "Oh, thanks." And my absolute favorite. I'm not making this up. Someone goes, "Nimesha, tss, hot stuff." I'm like, "Oh my gosh, thank you, thank you so much." And I, you know, I find my way to the side of the pool. I put my feet in. I start splashing. I'm enjoying myself. And can I tell you something else? It gets better. So this kid, Charles, whose party it is, I'm kind of sneaking some looks at him, and he catches my eye from across the pool. We lock glances and I can feel like there's an electricity in the whole party around. It's like I can tell, people can see that I'm looking at Charles. And the, the connection is so powerful. Charles like leaves his friends and starts walking around the pool. And I start feeling really hot. I take my soda. I like put it on my chest. I put it on my head. I like, try to cool down before it gets closer to me. He gets closer and closer. I'm like, oh, my God, it's happening. The popular boy is going to sit next to me. He gets right next to me in the pool. He leans and I can smell him. He smells like coconut. Like, that's weird, but okay, I'll go with it. Uh, He gets a little bit closer, and I can tell he's gonna say something to me. And he says, Nimisha. And I say, yes. And he says, Nimisha. And I say, yes. He says, Nimisha, why are you wearing your bra and underwear? I'm like, what? What? I turn over my shoulder and I take a look and it's true across the center of my back you can see my training bra halfway up my back you can see my flowery white Carter's underwear I'm mortified and that's when it hits me the reason I was making a splash walking by all those kids is they saw me. They didn't mean those compliments at all. They were making fun of me. And I run to the bathroom and I lock myself in there. The girl who gave me the ride comes to the bathroom. Hey, hey Nemisha, you can open the door? No. Come on, you gotta open the No. Look, it wasn't such a big deal. Well we know that's a lie, so she has to try a different tact. Um, and I, and I say, you know, why didn't you say anything? Why don't you tell me I, I needed to fix myself. I mean, I just got dressed in such a hurry. Like you came five minutes early and I was rushed and this is what happened. And she says, Namisha, I didn't know. I, I didn't see you. And I'm listening to the tone of her voice. and I'm thinking about where she was standing in the party and she's telling the truth. She didn't know. I stay in the bathroom for the rest of the party. The next day, no one asks me how I'm doing. No one checks in on me to see if I'm okay. And I realize that in this new school, I have learned a new way of being in America. In this new way of being in America, black and white and brown girls all have very different places. It's true. I don't get teased like Lachelle does, but I'm also not included in anything except group projects that can raise a grade. I'm basically playing the role of the model minority. And when I think about that party, I realize one other thing. Lachelle wasn't at that party. Now, I don't know if she wasn't there because that party happened after she moved, because here's the truth. Lachelle's parents took her out of that school because she was being bullied, just like I used to be bullied at my school in England. Or maybe Lachelle was there and she got the invitation and I hope I'm right when I think she might've ripped up the invitation and just like thrown it away. Because the truth is, Lachelle was smarter than me the whole time. She knew what this America wanted from her and she didn't give it. She dressed the way she wanted to dress, she smelled the way she wanted to smell, and she never wasted time on people who didn't care. I wish I could tell Lachelle that she had been right all along. I wish I could tell her I was a bystander and I should have and I could have done more, but I didn't. I wish I could tell her, Lachelle, thank you, Dark girls like us can wear bright colored dresses. We can wear red and yellow and green. And Lachelle, you're right. Coconut smells the same way on everyone. (laughs) Thank you.
2: (laughs) Fabulous.
0: Namisha Ladva, everyone. Let's hear it for her. Tell the people
1: what
2: she wore. It was Itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, yellow polka dot bikini That she wore for the first time today it's itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, yellow polka dot bikini So in the locker she wanted to stay Two, three, four, stick around,
3: we'll tell you more She
2: was afraid to come out of the locker She was as nervous as she could be She was afraid to come out of the locker was afraid that somebody would two, two, three, four, tell the people what you want. I'm 16 or 17 years old. I get off work about 11 o'clock at night, walk to the bus stop, and I missed it. So I decided I'm just gonna walk along, I'll catch the next one. This small primer gray truck pulls up beside me and inside is this big dude in jeans a shirt with a very feathery mullet. He leans over and he cranks down the passenger window and he says, do you want a ride? And I get in the truck. Now I know I've just gotten into a truck with a creeper. I watched this truck pass me into a U-turn seconds ago. But I'm going four miles down a major road and I live behind a strip mall that has a circle K, one on each side with a park behind it. So I think he'll drop me off at the Circle Cave bar that's in my house, and if he tries to follow me, I lose him in the park. Also, I don't really care that much about myself at the time, so the weight of getting home earlier versus possible harm to me doesn't tip the scale. We go a couple of blocks, and he turns off the road, and I say, dude, what are you doing? Turn around, this isn't the way, and he goes, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, and he, he turns the truck around, and we go a couple more blocks, and he turns off the road again. And I say, dude, you can stop the truck or you can turn around, this isn't the way. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm sorry. And he turns the truck around and then we go a couple more blocks and he turns off a fucking again. Only this time, before I can say anything, he turns on the light in the cab and I see that he has unzipped his pants and he's got his hard dick in his hand and I just go, banshee on the man. I am so full of rage I don't even know what I'm saying. I like come to mid saying, and you could suck your own fucking cock if you don't turn this truck around because it won't be attached to your body. And he turns the truck around and he drops me off at the Circle K. And as soon as I step foot out of the truck I realize I'm not angry. I'm frightened. And i don't want to be alone and i look around and i see this homeless dude and he's in his mid-20s he's got a few extra pounds a curly mop of brown hair and he sees me and he says do you know of a park i can sleep in and i just want to hug him <laughs> yes <laughs> walk with me please we get about three blocks and the sound of helicopters and sirens is getting louder and louder but it's early 90s in Sacramento. It's not that big of a deal. We get to another block, which is this four-way residential intersection, and the helicopter turns on its light, and four cop cars, one from each direction, comes wailing in, lights up blazing. Homeless dude and I, we look at each other like, who the fuck are you? but it is so clear from our facial expressions that neither one of us has anything to do with whatever is going on, so we just keep walking. I drop homeless dude off at the park and he finds a nice place to sleep and I make it the rest of the way home without any headlights following me. And once my heart starts to pace at a normal rate, I think, I'm so lucky I made it through that last 20 minutes unharmed. And then I'm surprised that that thought even came up. And I realized that it just took something that fucking scary for me to acknowledge that maybe I do care about myself. Maybe my life does have value.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm from the Midwest, right? and uh okay outside chicago and uh back home back in my circle of friends just monogamy runs rampant and i have friends who have been together since middle school like numerous couples since like seventh grade like walking each other to their lockers it's gross i have uh numerous friends from high school right and all my friends from college are now coupled up and they all have all the kids, you know, they got down to that right after graduation. And I'm now I've become this surrogate uncle, right? Where it's always it's not like in a fun way too, it's just kinda like, what do we gotta invite him, right? Like, I guess pull out another chair, you know, and that's that's me back home. And so when I moved out here a number of years ago, I decided that I really wanted to find my person, right? And so I tried online dating. Uh, for the first time really in its nascency right when it was at the beginning and I went online and I it wasn't the swiping it was just filling out like you know, 200 questions you know like do you want to build a bird feeder or look at a bird feeder and it's like i want to build the bird feeder and i don't know what it meant but it categorizes you as you as you move your way down and i did all the paperwork it took so long and then i started actually getting matches and it took me longer than i like to really admit that all the women i was matching with were just Robots trying to steal my banking information. That was the whole inbox. And it was like, you're so cute. What's your mother's maiden name? Like, these are the questions <laughs> over and over again. And so um, I was about to give up, and then I actually started matching with human, human women. And I went out with one, and we were having drinks. She was very nice, and I was just trying to get to know her. I said, what, what are your hobbies? What are you interested in? And she said, Nazis. And I said... <laughs> oh, like like World War II history buff. And she goes, no, just Nazis. And I said, okay. <laughs> I went out with another woman. We were sitting down. It didn't take long for her to say, you don't make enough money for me. They're right off. And to be fair, she's totally right. Like, I don't. Um, but there's that. And I went out with a, another one. We had a nice time. And I texted her the next day. I said, hey, how are you? And she responded a month later. And her whole response, she just said, quote, I'm dead. That was her response. So, like, literally ghosted, right? And so, I wasn't in the best place, and I was ready to give up, and that's when I actually matched with someone I connected with, and she was smart, and she was funny, and she was kind, and she wasn't a robot or a Nazi sympathizer, right? She was was perfect. And so, we decided to set a date, and we set a lunch date, because that's how I roll. And uh, I used the, the shirt that I was saving for a special occasion in the closet. And I, I said, you know what? I'm even going to pick you up. Where do you live? And I live on the east side. And she goes, oh, I live in the valley. And I said, that sounds close. And after an hour and a half on the five, I arrived. And when she got in my car... I was I was stunned because normally on all these sites, like when you see someone online, you swipe on someone or whatever, and then you meet them in person. They don't look nearly as good, right? This was the opposite. She was this radiant person. She got in next to me, and I was like, oh, my gosh. And so we started driving along, and she goes, there's this nice place over here in a strip mall because everything's in a strip mall, in the valley especially, and we pulled over, and we sat down, and I ordered the very expensive salmon salad because I thought that would look sophisticated, we were sitting there, and it was then I realized that we really didn't have a lot in common. Um, and it was just little things. Like, she loved cats, and I'm severely, severely allergic. And she loved country music, whereas I prefer actual music. And so, these little differences here and there. But, in spite of this, I thought, you know, we can, we can get past this. It's going to be like a romantic comedy. We can be like a couple of opposites attracting this is going to be really really adorable and so uh paid and we were walking to my car and she grabbed my arm and she said you want to get out of here and head to an animal shelter and i said what what does that mean <laughs> and she clarified that she just wanted to go to an animal shelter and look at all the animals and i thought i've come this far sure, maybe like being open to new experiences would be real sexy and seductive. So I said, yeah, that's exactly what I want to do. I want to go to an animal shelter. So we went back to my car, and because she grew up in the area, she told me how to get there turn by turn, and eventually we arrived and we walked in. My face just swelled shut
0: because it was
1: like all cats. It was just these long corridors of cages stacked floor to ceiling, and I just stood there in the corner, just squinting at her. That's all I could do. It looked like someone had like, dropped a beehive on my head. And I watched her. She went from one cage to the next, and she just softly like, pet each cat through the bars. And she just cooed at each little, little cat. And it was so endearing and charming. And I thought, I can do this. You know, I can make my allergies work. I can... I can take pills for the rest of my life. They can be our allergies. And so I watched her do all this, but then she became absolutely irate. She was just like rigid with anger. And I went up to her, and I said, what's wrong? And she said, it's Misty. And I said, what does that mean? <laughs> and she clarified. She said, it's my childhood cat. What? And I said, what? Are you, what, are you, what are you saying? And I looked in the cage... And there was a cat that looked like every other cat I've ever seen in my entire life. And she's just fuming. She goes, I'm gonna call my mom. And I said, let's just slow down for a minute here because that's not how life works, right? This isn't a thing. But she already has her mom on speakerphone. She says, mom, where's, where's Misty? And her mom says, Misty's at home. And I thought, okay, great, we're done with this. But she, that wasn't good enough for her. She, so she called her dad, got her dad on speakerphone, and she goes, it was him. He was the one who did this. And I'm like, okay. And so her dad gets on the phone. Her dad goes, uh, hello? She goes, dad, where's Misty? And her dad goes, Misty's at home. And she goes, really? Because I'm standing in an animal shelter right now, and I'm looking at a cat that looks an awful lot like Misty. And her dad caved. <laughs> he said, I'm so very sorry. I dropped Misty off at some random shelter and I hate Misty. And she broke down sobbing. So now I, I, we don't know what to do. So we go, we talk to the shelter manager. The shelter manager sees two people with these very swollen, puffy faces come for two very distinct reasons. We say, can we please get the cat out? Can we please get the cat out? This is her cat. And the, the guy goes, I'm sorry, there's a 48-hour quarantine on all recently admitted animals. We need to let her sit here. And so we couldn't do anything. So we just, we left. We got back in my car. And so I didn't know what to do just to fill this gaping void. I just started driving. And she got on her speakerphone and started screaming to her sister, presumably about what their father had done. And it was peppered with all these awful, awful phrases that aren't even fit for the podcast. It was, you know, da-da-da-da-da, and then just like graphic, graphic language. And so it got to the point where I was still squinting trying to drive, and I didn't know where I was going, so I had to keep interrupting her. Until finally she screamed at me, she berated me, she called me insensitive for interrupting. And I began to think right in that moment, like, maybe it's not going to work out between the two of us. And so eventually we got back to her place. And she, true to form, said the last thing that I expected to hear. She leaned over to me and she said, we should do this again sometime. And I thought, what, is, what does that mean? And so, I don't know, driving home on the five, I had like a couple hours just to reflect upon things. And, uh, you know, even though my eyes were swollen, I still had like new perspective. And maybe she wasn't the one, right? But that's okay because I could always give those, those robots... One more shot, (laughs) thanks.
0: This is Risk, this is the Rolling Stones behind me now, and we just heard from Brian Kett, who you can find at briankett.com. Brian's also, like I said, a faculty member of ours at thestorystudio.org. Before Brian, we heard from Aaron Swigart, that crazy story about hitchhiking, Now that Erin sent that in when she heard me calling for super short stories, those little anecdotes. And she said, yep, this whole incident took place in 20 minutes. So I figured, yeah, I could wedge it into a four minute story. And she did a great job and Jeff Barr edited it. I'll bet you can think of an incident that happened to you. Maybe it involves racism. Maybe it involves the pandemic we're living through, or social justice activism, or maybe it has nothing to do with any of those things, just a fantastic incident from your life that took five, 10, 15, 20 minutes to happen that you can tell about in less than five. Like, you know, a couple weeks ago, Jay Carpenter told that story about her father getting struck by lightning in his living room. Well, there's a perfect example. If you need any advice on how you might tell a short story like that on the show, just write to me directly at Kevin at risk show.com. I can give you a little coaching around it, make some suggestions, give you some notes, tell you how to record good for getting good audio quality and all that. So yeah, we still need your anecdotes on a regular basis. We're loving these contributions from our listeners. Okay, our final story on this week's episode comes to us from one of our live streams. I'll tell you, we have been on such an incredible roll with these live streams. The next one is October, uh, October, <laughs> August twenty second <22nd laughs> at ten p.m. Eastern. And tickets are at risk show.com/slash tour. Now, as you know, things can get pretty emotional at those live streams. This is one of those moments. This is a beloved member of the risk community. Tracy Segarra has told so many remarkable stories. She's in the risk book. You can find Tracy at tracysegarra.com. And here she is now. With a story we call Fiona's Story.
4: Growing up, I could not wait to become a big time New York City crime reporter. While other kids were reading Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, I was reading Helter Skelter and biographies of Ted Bundy. Now, I blame Son of Sam, David Berkowitz, the serial killer who was terrorizing the Queen's neighborhood that was just five miles from my house when I was growing up in the late 70s. And that summer, all you saw on TV, all that was in the news was just about Son of Sam, and he was leaving notes at the crime scenes, he was killing young couples, and then he was writing letters to Jimmy Breslin, the newspaper columnist. And everybody was horrified, my mother wouldn't let me go anywhere. I mean, I was only like 12 or 13, so I wasn't really going anywhere anyway. But everybody was horrified, but I was fascinated. I was just fascinated. So when I finally grow up and I become a reporter for the Park Slope paper in Brooklyn, a weekly paper i feel like i have made it it's a weekly paper and i love everything about it i love the flip reporters notebooks that you know make me look very official like a a reporter on tv i love the press pass it's laminated with my picture on it and it allows me to cross police and fire lines wherever they are formed and i cross them every chance i get whether i need to or not I remember writing in my journal one night, I can't believe they are paying me to do something that I love so much. But in order to be a big crime reporter, you need a big crime, right? And there's not much going on in Park Slope at the time. It's a very gentrified already neighborhood in the 90s. But one day, I finally get what could be my big story, it's the middle of the day, and a young girl, 17 years old, Fiona Pachukas, had taken the day off from school to fill out college applications, and she was standing in the middle of Seventh Avenue on Park Slope on the sidewalk, and a car driven by these joyriding teens, a stolen car, slam into her and three other people on the sidewalk. And later on at the hospital, Fiona passes away. And my boss my editor says all right Tracy this is it this is your story and I'm excited this is it this is gonna be my big above-the-fold you know 65 point type with my byline this is gonna be my first big story as a crime reporter and he says okay you need to call the mother and you need to go over there and interview her and the minute he says that I'm like taken aback I'm like I want to be a big-time crime reporter, but I didn't really think through what that meant I had to do, which is to talk to grieving family members. But I go over to her brownstone, and um, as I'm going up the steps and I'm about to ring the bell, I'm suddenly seized with this fear, like, what does a grieving mother act like or look like? Or, you know, is she going to be angry at me? Is she going to be crying the whole time? Like, I had no idea what to expect. But when she opens the door, She's this very small, very quiet woman. And she graciously invites me into her home. And she spends the next hour asking all of my stupid cub reporter questions like, how do you want her to be remembered? And I don't even remember what I asked. But I remember I was incredibly nervous. And she hands me this picture of Fiona with her dog. And I see that she was beautiful, beautiful girl. And she thanks me for coming out to talk to her, and that just freaks me out a little bit, but I've done it. I've gotten my first big interview, and I head back to the paper, but when I get back into the newsroom, my editor can tell that I'm like a little off, and he looks at me and he's like, what's the matter, Miller, you can't handle the heat, talking to a grieving mother? And I'm like, yeah, yeah, don't, you know, I'm fine, don't worry about me, I'm fine. But we're a weekly paper, so I'm not done, you know, writing my story, there's gonna be a couple more days before we go to press, and that night, there's a candlelight vigil for Fiona that people in the neighborhood have, uh, have formed. So there I am with my press pass and my reporter's notebook and I'm interviewing friends of hers from high school and I'm milling throughout the crowd. There's like 300 people there. This is like the biggest thing to happen in Park Slope in a long time. Certainly the biggest tragedy. And at one point, this woman taps me on the shoulder, and I say, hi, I said, did you know Fiona? And she looks at her husband and she says, should I tell her? And he says, yeah, you should tell her. And she turns to me and she said, I'm a medical student. And I was there the night that they brought Fiona in. And I held her hand as they were working on her. And I kept telling her, you're going to be okay, you're going to be okay. But at one point, she looks up at me, and she says, it doesn't look good, does it? I'm not gonna make it, am I? And as I'm writing this down, I'm in reporter mode with my press pass, but all of a sudden, like, the whole crowd melts away, like, everything that I'm doing just melts away, and I excuse myself, I thank her, and I walk into the crowd. And I'm no longer a reporter. I'm no longer, you know, distanced from what's going on in this story. All I can think about is this 17-year-old girl lying on a gurney in a hospital knowing that she wasn't going to make it. And I think about, I'm only 10 years older than her, and it really, really affects me. But again, I say to myself, you know, this is the first time I've had to do this. I'll get better with time, I'll toughen up. And I go back to the newsroom and I write the hell out of that story. I write an amazing front page, full type story. But I have to wait a few days for it to come out and I'm excited. I'm excited because this is what I've been working towards, you know? And so the paper comes out, and my editor puts a bunch of copies on my desk, and it's a big broadsheet, you know, like the New York Times, and there, above the fold, young girl's death stuns Park Slope. And there's not only one story by me, there's two stories by me one about the actual accident, and another one about the candlelight vigil. And I'm elated. This is it, you know, this is, you know, I'm in a weekly paper, then I'm gonna to go to a daily paper, and then who knows, like, my career is on fire now. And I stay a reporter, and I, I cover more stories, and then I get a job at UPI, the Daily Wire Service, and I cover the first World Trade Center bombing, and I cover the Woody Allen and Mia Farrow custody battle, and I, I work out of, you know, the courts, and I work out of City Hall. But then one day, just, UPI is emerging from its like fifth bankruptcy, they're not paying my expense reports anymore, and I'm about to get married, and I just, without even really thinking somebody else had another job opportunity for me, I just leave it. I just leave reporting behind, and I go on to a totally different career. And years later, I mean, I'd get married, and then I, I'd have children, and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted a more stable kind of job. And now it's 2005. And, you know, of course I read the newspapers. You can take the girl out of reporting, which you can't take the reporter out of the girl. And I come across this news article in 2005, and it's this terrible tragedy on Long Island. A um, family was coming home in a limousine from a family wedding, and a drunk driver broadsided the limo. On the highway, and a little seven year old girl, a flower girl at the wedding, was killed. And as I read more into the story, there the mother is talking, and it becomes apparent that this is not a news conference called by the police or the prosecutors. The mother planned this news conference, and she starts telling this New York City press corps about what it was like to sit on the side of the road cradling what was left of her daughter's head in her hands, because she'd been decapitated. And as I'm reading this, it says in the article that there was stunned silence from this, you know, hard and tough New York press corps. And as a mother and as a former reporter, I knew instantly, I knew instinctively why this mother did that, why she held this news conference, why she emerged from her grief. Because she knew that to these reporters, to this throng, this was just another news story. If it bleeds, it leads. And it was just, you know, fodder for the five o'clock news. And she was telling them, no you are not going to turn my tragedy into entertainment and I'm going to make you feel something. And she did. And instantly after I read that article, I thought of Fiona. And I thought about how her death had affected me all those years ago. You know, crime reporters write about death and then they move on. But stories, stories have always stayed with me. And Fiona's story, the first tragedy I ever saw up close, has haunted me for 30 years. In November, it'll be 30 years since she died. But aside from her tragic death, you know, some of the things that have stayed with me are about her life, the things that I learned from her mother and her friends. Of like how she saved up from a part time job to buy a horse. A Brooklyn kid, you know, bought a horse that she would ride upstate New York. And that she took these beautiful, dreamy photographs. She was a photographer, and in fact, I saw a display of her photographs at the Brooklyn Borough Hall after her death. And I thought about how she dreamed of becoming an artist and how she was actually on her way to an art supply store the day that she died. And, you know, I used to think that Fiona and why I kept her with me, it was a reminder of my failure, that I should have toughened up. I should have developed that hard casing so that I could be a crime reporter with the rest of the New York City press corps. But the truth is, I was never meant to be another Jimmy Breslin. I felt things too much. I felt Fiona's death too much, and that was just the first one. And I think somewhere deep inside me, I knew that if I kept on doing that, it would have broken me. I didn't know it at the time. But Fiona was never evidence of my failure as a reporter. And now I think that she was really a touchstone to remind me that it's okay, It's okay to give up your dreams when they no longer suit you. So now I think. One of the reasons I kept Fiona with me is that she's become part of my story. And that tonight, with a full heart, I can let you know not just about how she died, but to also let you know that she lived. Thank you.
0: this week's episode folks this is Neil Young behind me and we just heard from Tracy Segarra you know it was so moving because members of Fiona's family were there at the live stream that night and were very moved and are now interested in doing some storytelling of their own so, that's, that's the power of this stuff, you know? Everyone can do this. Everyone can do this. And we invite you to our next live stream. It is, as I said before, August. I don't know why I keep saying October. It is August 22nd. <laughs> at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. That's 7 p.m. Pacific. And you can get your tickets at risk-show.com tour. We had three different editors working on the stories this week. Uh, John Lasala, Jeff Barr, and Samir Zarif edited that uh, story by Brian Kett this week. Michelle Walson did the story coaching on Namisha Ladva and Tracy Segarra. You know, you can check your, your notes if you're listening to the podcast on any sort of podcast player. You can look at the show notes and they will list all the pertinent links that you would need to get involved, get engaged, and be more active with us over at risk for example uh support risk on patreon at patreon.com slash risk Make a one-time donation to risk at PayPal.me slash risk show. Get your tickets to risk live shows at com slash tour. Get the risk book at theriskbook.com. Take storytelling classes at thestorystudio.org. And that also includes corporate workshops, by the way. Hire me. To make a personalized video for you at cameo.com/slash the Kevin Allison. Hire me as a coach at KevinAllison.com. Text with me about risk and storytelling at joinsubtext.com slash risk show. Yeah, I've been having a hell of a lot of fun with subtext. The whole thing is. You get texts from me on an almost daily basis, and you can reply, and I'll be the only one that sees the reply, so you're actually conversing with me via text. And I think that about covers it for this week. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. I don't know what tomorrow may (laughs) bring.